Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Media viewing trends are rapidly changing. Americans are watching more video content across more screens than ever before. Brands need to adapt to these changing habits to get their message heard. Multi-screen TV advertising can help, and it's more efficient and effective than ever. Advertisers can select their target audience and geographic areas and deliver their ads with minimal waste. Comcast Spotlight helps brands put their message in front of the right audience on any device. That's the power of TV. Get started today at ComcastSpotlight.com slash advertising. Hey, before we get started, uh, this is David. I did want to uh, tell you about something we're working on that maybe you can help us out with. We actually really need your help with. Uh, We recently recorded our 150th episode of this show. And around every 50 episodes, we like to stop and take questions from our listeners those questions can be about anything, about advertising, about marketing, about ad week, uh, if you really want to know, have burning questions about what we're up to every day, uh, or about the future of the industry or the media. Uh, honestly, anything. We're open to whatever. So you can send us those questions at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. Uh, and those will go to me and the rest of the uh, podcast team, and we will do our best to answer as many questions as possible on an upcoming uh, bonus episode where we tackle uh, questions from our listeners. So that's podcast at adweek.com. Hit us with uh, whatever you got. We'll do our best. Feel free to try to stump us and uh, we'll, we'll get to as many questions as we can. Thanks so much and on to this week's show. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. It's the Adweek podcast where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the creative and innovation editor with Adweek. And uh, we're going to start off this week's episode with some uh, pretty recent news. Uh, I've got Shoshana Wadinsky, our platform's reporter here at Adweek, joining me to talk about Twitter's decision to stop accepting political ads. It's one of the biggest uh, pieces of political advertising news I've heard in quite a while and certainly has rattled uh, quite a few folks in the industry and in politics. Shoshana, thanks so much for making time for us. No, thanks for having me. This is this is really big news. I'm excited to talk about it. We've got uh, quite a few other Adweek folks we're going to talk to in a minute about um, some of our biggest awards that we've got this year uh, coming up very soon and just announced. Uh, but before we do that, I did want to uh, square away some time with Shoshana to talk about this. So 
essentially, uh, Shashan, tell us uh, what how we found out about this, I think, is also equally fascinating. Yeah. So at 4 p.m. Uh, Eastern time or 1 p.m. Pacific uh, yesterday, like when, like Wednesday afternoon, uh, Jack Dorsey basically went on Twitter, uh, the, play, the platform that he owns, and went on this massive tweet thread where he was basically like, hey, our platform isn't going to be taking political ad money anymore, and, and here's why. And for the most part, it was it, it seems to be driven by mostly kind of uh, ideological decisions. But at the same time, uh, he did kind of like briefly call out fellow social giant uh, Facebook, who's been kind of coming under fire for accepting a lot of political money for what some people feel are uh, all the wrong reasons. Yeah. And, and I, you know, this part of what was fascinating about this is Jack has not always been the most... Um, self-aware person when it comes to some of this, <laughs> you know, I, I like the ban the Nazis has been a, a pretty yeah. common re- refrain for a lot of folks. And he always just kind of has this seeming collective shrug of like, ah, what can you do? And so it's kind of funny. I mean, like if you had asked me two weeks ago, I would say that he was probably the least likely to make this decision because he always kind of strikes this pose as a bit of a techno libertarian. Um, and, and instead he came out like guns blazing about, uh, you know, that that bad actors within the advertising space are continually manipulating this technology to, you know, for the for the sake of disinformation. Well, you know, what's what's really funny is that, you know, um, so like you said, Jack, Jack is kind of like a, a techno libertarian and ki- kind of an interesting guy. But but the truth is, Twitter has never been kind of the politician's platform of choice. You know, you can't really target individual voters. You can't really kind of like reach the demographics you're going for as easily as you can like on a platform like Facebook or on a platform like Google. So Jack probably did a little bit of calculus and said like, okay, there's so much kind of like whiplash going on among the political advertising ecosystem. And he had actually kind of gotten a little bit of blowback as well from uh, uh, Joe Biden for airing an ad that was kind of like attacking him on like the on like this kind of like baseless conspiracy theory that uh, Donald Trump was perpetuating. So he was facing a lot of pushback and he kind of, he probably like looked at the numbers and just said like this is this it's just just not worth it. And by the way, so while political ads in general are being banned, uh, promoted tweets and like in-stream video ads are still very much kicking as far as I know. Yeah, and and he has not been clear about what the exceptions will be to this, but there will be some. I think specifically mm-hmm. he called out voter registration ads are still fine. Um, but he did specifically say like we originally thought about just doing candidates and then decided that's just not <laughs> realistic <laughs> about <laughs> the way the way the world works right now. Right, exactly. And like, and like, I, I hate to keep comparing it to Facebook, but like they they did kind of like work in tandem. So like Facebook also recently rolled out similar rules for issue ads, like pretty much like the same rules that they have around like political advertising. So folks that want to advertise about something like gun control or health reform, even if they're not directly affiliated with a politician, they still need to jump through all the same hoops that a political advertiser would have to do. And it looks like Twitter, for the most part, is kind of lumping those two into the same bucket as well. Yeah, the uh, it, you know it's it seems like the biggest backlash uh, to this decision uh, came from Donald Trump's campaign, <laughs> uh, which you know pr- pretty quickly announced like oh this is terrible they're they're walking away from money they they're doing this specifically because I think I think his campaign manager said you know we have the the best digital apparatus of all time or whatever uh, you know the phrasing was just kind of typical. Um, 
like over the top. And uh, but but, you know, what fascinated me about that is that it really does highlight how important Twitter is to Donald Trump, because, you know, here we have a sitting president who who is going to face a tough election. And in any other universe, that's the person who should be least worried about a decision like this, right? Because they have the biggest platform on the planet and and you cannot, and he's got millions of followers, you know, so it's not like, <laughs> it's like like on paper. And again, like, you know, rules generally of, of how things have traditionally worked rarely apply to this administration. And, you know, it's... Um, it's just fascinating to me that they were the kind of the first to complain because you would think if you were, if you are one of these Democrats running in a crowded field, you, mm-hmm. you're going to try to break out. You're you're busting your ass on fundraising, and you're going to be relying on tools like these, uh, you know, social ads. That you'd be the one who says. It, like, hey, we, we really need these in, in, or, in order to compete. And, and Jack, I think, acknowledged, right, that that mm-hmm. that some some say this helps incumbents. And yet the biggest incumbent uh, in the country is the one who came out, you know, complaining about it. Right. 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 So, you know, I, I've, I've I've been kind of hearing kind of murmurs on the ground that like the, the folks that are going to lose out the most from this are kind of like smaller spending kind of local candidates. But at the same time, like they have limited budgets in the first place. And quite frankly, those budgets are probably better spent on other platforms. Forms to, to begin with, at least from what I'm hearing. But at the same time, you know, I heard one political advertiser kind of explained it to me that like Twitter with kind of its short form content and its very kind of vocal audience, uh, it, it is kind of the platform for the quote unquote like man yelling on a street corner. And uh, <laughs> I, when I'm looking at Donald Trump's Twitter feed, that is kind of like the, the vibe that I get. So it would make sense that he is kind of a little bit uh, rattled by this. Yeah. And I mean, it's his platform of choice, right? Like, I mean, mm-hmm. they certainly his campaign uses Facebook, uh, you know, and email uh, and texting very kind of strategically and, and uh, you know, a high quantity of output. Uh, but in, in terms of Trump himself, it's it's all Twitter all the time. And so that's mm-hmm. my hunch on, on kind of why they they kind of struck back at that so quickly. But in the end, you know, it's setting aside incumbency. It's also it's a it's a it's a rule that's going to apply to everybody equally, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so it's not like liberals somehow get an advantage uh, from this. So let's talk about Facebook, because that's obviously the other side of this coin. Um, how would you, you know, you see the, the phrase doubling down a lot lately with Zuckerberg. It's like, uh, you know, Facebook and Zuckerberg doubling down on their political ad policy. Uh, tell us what, where do they stand right now and what they will or won't allow? Oh, my God. So it's so funny. On a, on Facebook's earning call last night, they spent about the first 10, 10 to 12 minutes or so just talking about their stance on political advertising. So, yes, they are most certainly doubling down, uh, not not only in the face of the press, but in the face of their shareholders, shareholders as well. Um, so right now it looks like, you know, they say that – uh, political ads are, are scrutinized and checked by by third party uh, fact checkers, but for the most part, it looks like politicians and, and folks that are covering things in the issue space are pretty much able to say anything they want within with, within within reason, of course. And I mean, have they expressed? The, I mean, I'm sure they have in this uh, verbose defenses of this plan. But I mean, what's their argument there of of like why you would allow, and I know that Zuckerberg got grilled about this when he was on the Capitol Hill, but, you know, why allow blatant disinformation? Like what is in the benefit of, of you know, of Facebook or society to to say, yeah, that's mm-hmm. fine. So it's so funny because Facebook has been kind of 
right, rightfully so, in my opinion, kind of targeted for its stance on political misinformation, especially because during the 2016 election, we we all know, uh, thanks to Cambridge Analytica, uh, so much of that was spread so far. Um, but kind of since then, you know, it looks like Zuckerberg at least like hasn't really hasn't hasn't really learned his lesson. So in some ways, like, you know, like political information uh, spread by you or me, like that is clearly like kind of like closely watched and like certain things would be kind of like de- like um, more heavily regulated or might be kind of uh, called out by Facebook's algorithms. But for some reason, once you reach a certain kind of a level of, of status or once you reach like a certain kind of standing as a political figure, um, Facebook has this kind of uh, policy where they say, you know, we don't censor politicians. We like to let voters choose for themselves. And uh, the thing is, when you're faced with a political ad, you know, like that's paid for so it, so it can target you. Like that's being thrown in front of your face. So it's like, it, are voters really choosing for themselves when they're having misinformation literally micro-targeted towards them? Like it, it I, I, I personally don't, don't think so. Do you think that there's any chance at all that Twitter's decision could have any impact on Facebook? Uh, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that noise probably sums it up. Well, well, well. Okay, okay. Clearly, clearly, like, like at from 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 a business uh, POV, like what Twitter is doing is very, very good. They're painting themselves as kind of like the anti Facebook, and they're saying like, you know, like we are the honest platform. We are the platform that you can trust. Unlike you know, Big Blue over there. And meanwhile, Facebook is saying like, you know, we might not be the most trustworthy, but at least we're not censoring free speech. And at this point, they are so. Kind of, they've dug in their heels so far that, like, I, I, in my, you know, every, everybody's always asking me, like, do you think Facebook will ever reverse course? And, like, personally, like, I, I doubt it, at least before 2021. Well, thank you so much, Shoshana. I definitely encourage everyone to check out Shoshana's coverage of this and many other issues <laughs> on the major social platforms. Uh, you were covering uh, programmatic for us until recently, so some readers and listeners may know you from that. Uh, but uh, congratulations on the new role. It's been uh, really exciting to have you covering, uh, you know, these major platforms uh, and bringing kind of that expertise that you had on the programmatic side and bringing that to, to you know, these kind of the most important digital platforms of the day. So glad to have you on the beat. No, it's it's great. It's great. Great to be here. Thanks for bringing me on the podcast. I love talking about this stuff. All right. Well, thanks so much, Shoshana. And now we're going to uh, move on to uh, welcome in a few other Adweek staffers, and we'll, uh, we'll continue the conversation in just a second. Television is changing. Viewers have more access to content, and advertisers have more access insights from data. Comcast Spotlight knows how to use this data to help advertisers reach their ideal customers. With Spotlight, advertisers can select audiences based on geography and demographics. Then they can deliver their message to those precise target audiences at the local, regional, or national level. And comprehensive reporting gives advertisers confidence that their campaigns are working. See how multi-screen TV advertising can help your business. Get started today at ComcastSpotlight.com advertising. Got a packed house today. 
uh, lots of great folks uh, from the Adweek team to talk about one of our biggest awards of the year. Some would argue our biggest award of the year, the Brand Genius Awards that we give out to kind of the brightest minds in marketing. Uh, and we will be digging into that with us to talk about that and the rest of this week's print issue and our Brand Week event, our, our probably also our biggest event, uh, happens uh, kicking off pretty much today if you're listening to this on Sunday or Monday. Uh, so we've got a lot to talk about. We've got Diana Pearl, uh, who recently promoted. I, I love having people on right after they, they get a new title so they can tell us. Diana has been a staff writer covering the brand marketing beat. But tell us your new title. I'm now a senior writer. All right. And uh, you've there was another piece to it. Oh, yeah. The uh, the Brand Week print oh, edition yeah. aspect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's actually been around for a little longer. But, yeah, I'm also the managing editor for our, our Brand Week. But, yeah, new, yeah. less new uh-huh. to me. So I forgot. <laughs> All right. Uh, and of course, got back Kamiko McCoy, social editor and co-host of the podcast. Kamiko, how are you? I'm tired, if we're being honest, but I'm here. Hey. It's not Monday. I was going to say it's Monday. It's Tuesday. You can see where I'm at. I, I encourage full <laughs> transparency. <laughs> like e- even ignoring the, the I, I like people to think that we record this like we come in on a Sunday morning, record this the day of. Uh, but no, we've got a lot to we're recording this well in advance because uh man we got a lot of folks that got to get over to palm springs for our brand week event uh, and speaking of which got robert clara senior editor who covers the history and the world of brands robert always a pleasure to have you on thank you for having me david uh robert spearheads our brand genius award so he'll be talking a lot about that uh but you know we were talking right before the show right before we started recording about uh, a lot of globe trotting going on diana uh, where have you been for the last, uh, whoa, it was a while. Yeah, it was about a little over a month. Um, and I took some time at the end to travel, but I was in London. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and then traveling all throughout the UK and a little bit in France, but, um, yeah, mostly in, in London working. Yeah. So tell us about, uh, about your London experience. You are a, a bit, I mean, anyone who follows your Twitter feed can, <laughs> can vouch that you're a bit of an Anglophile in certain ways, but how was the experience? Yeah, a bit, a bit. He's putting it mildly. Um, yeah, I love London. I studied abroad there. I've always sort of been looking for ways to, to get back. Um, I have a friend who moved there full time back in March and kind of said, you can come stay in my guest room, whatever you want. And I, took them up on the offer. Um, it was really a really great experience, not just being in London personally, but professionally was also really cool. Um, I was meeting with people pretty much every day. I feel like in the industry, a lot of agencies, um, some brands, just experts in the marketing space. Um, it's also obviously a really exciting time to be there right now because of Brexit and all that that implies. Um, maybe exciting isn't the word that <laughs> yeah, people in the UK <laughs> would use. <laughs> they might say uh, horrifying, but um yeah, definitely like a, a very busy time. So it was an interesting time to to get people's thoughts and really learn about um, the UK advertising industry and all that good stuff. You wrote a piece uh, for us when you got back about how the kind of the marketing world of, of uh, the UK of London is preparing for Brexit. What's what is the general sentiment over there? Yeah, um, well, the general sentiment is that they kind of can't prepare because they still don't know what's happening. Um, For those who are unaware, um, it was like supposed to happen back in March. Then they got an extension um, and it was supposed to happen on Thursday. And then just yesterday they got, they being the UK, got another extension. So now they're not leaving the EU until January 31st of next year, which makes it like three and a half years, over three and a half years since the referendum in 2016. Um, And while this has all been going on, You know, people don't know what's going to happen. They don't know if there's going to be a deal, if there's going to be no deal, um, what a deal is going to look like. Now it's kind of looking more like there is going to be a deal, but things change every single day. 
So it's kind of like you're preparing for something that you don't, you have no idea what you're preparing for. So what I've seen is it's a lot of like future proofing for every possible option. Um, A big fear is tariffs coming in on goods. So really how that's going to affect their clients. Like if you have an automotive client that produces in the UK, obviously like exporting that to Europe now could be a lot more expensive than it used to be, which will have a big impact on automotive manufacturers. So kind of future proofing for that. Um, What I've seen a lot of companies do is setting up offices in Paris or Amsterdam or other European cities so they can have a presence in the EU and they can operate there and they can trade in the euro and all that sort of thing. So now they're sort of like protected. So even if things go poorly and there isn't a deal or there isn't like a a good deal, so to speak, um, they still have that presence there. So they're they are protected. Um, but a lot of it is just sort of this like wariness and uncertainty and feeling a little like, how can you prepare for something that, you know, you can do your best and you can try to cover all your bases, but something can come up and you you're like, oh, I, we didn't even think to prepare for that. So it's hard when things change so frequently. Yeah. If there's one thing the business world loves, it's uncertainty. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so it just makes the stock markets just so happy. Yeah. But, well, the, uh, yeah, that it's, it's fascinating. I just got back from the Czech Republic for a work trip and, uh, it, it, what, what really struck me is that I would be sitting in the hotel lobby working and I'm looking at the TV. And, you know, in America, if you watch 24 hour news, uh, it's, it's just going to be whatever Trump tweeted last, right? Like that's the story is like, Trump angry at this or, you know, investigations into this. And it's, it's all Trump all the time. Uh, over there, it was just Brexit all the time and, and the occasional protests elsewhere. But, you know, it just made me realize like, wow, we're living in two very parallel sides of the world here where, you know, these these uh, kind of intricacies of whether or not uh, Britain is going to leave the EU is kind of what, the number one international story. And then over here, we're just so distracted every day by our own, our own domestic uh, chaos. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, it was a really fascinating experience. While I was over there, Robert, you were also having uh, your own trip across Germany. Uh, was that uh, for fun, for book research? What, what were you up to over there? It was a little bit of both. Uh, I was able to get some research done when I was in Berlin, but uh, the main objective for my trip was to head down to the uh, town of Friedrichshafen uh, in southern Germany, in Bavaria, actually, uh, where I was fortunate to book a ticket aboard the Zeppelin NT, uh, which is the uh, the new Zeppelin, uh, an improvement over the Hindenburg. And um, <laughs> glad, glad to hear they finally uh, bumped up the design. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they paid attention to the flammability of the lifting gas, uh, much to uh, to my gratitude. Um, it is not easy to get a ticket on that ship, and it is not cheap. But I managed to make it down there. It took thirteen hours and three trains and two buses, and somehow I made it uh, with an unintended uh, detour into Switzerland. But that's another story. Uh, and I took my trip, and it was utterly astonishing. What is the what's the goal of this Zeppelin? Like, what is it? Do people just ride around in it for fun, or is it an actual form of mass transportation from one place to another? Yeah, it's funny because this incarnation of the Zeppelin company uh, has the same problems that uh, Count von Zeppelin had uh, in the early 1900s, which is that it, it's it's this absolutely fantastic, fun, uh, unique form of transportation in search of a, a, a profit model uh, because basically they bill it as an advertising vehicle and they have three Zeppelins now and they there are advertisements on the sides of them. So it's similar to what Goodyear 
uh, has historically done in this country with its blimps. And incidentally, Zeppelin NT is now building airships for Goodyear. So um, technically, there are Zeppelins flying in the United States, but the public cannot get on board them. Uh, the other way that they build these ships is uh, for scientific research. I uh, can't say too much about that. I'm not really sure what uh, what needs to be discovered at 1,000 feet above sea level that we don't already know. Uh, and um, I have a feeling that the real bread and butter, though, is people like me because uh, a half an hour in that ship is about $260 or so. Um, and uh, they can take uh, 14 people up at a time. And I, might, I didn't run the math, but I think that uh, passengers – uh, form a good portion of their revenue stream over there. Wow. Uh, Kamiko, what have you been up to lately? Not traveling. Um, <laughs> unless the subway counts. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'm actually preparing to be a part of the Folio show that's happening. Um, I guess it'll be over by the time that we release this podcast, but talking on behalf of Adweek about what engagements are happening and on social media. So been prepping for that. Nice. All right. Well, that's. Uh, I appreciate everyone indulging us on our Adweek updates, but this is like one of the best parts of the show is that we all actually get to talk to each other. <laughs> you would think. You would think. It's like we never think to actually update each other on our lives on Slack. We mostly just, you know, make fun of things, and that pretty much eats up the whole day. Uh, well, we have got a lot more to talk about, so let's get into it. Can can, can we talk about chicken sandwiches? Always. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Can always count on Kamiko. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like this is, I mean, this is like second only to football in the South for, uh, you know, for clear choice of discussion. But uh, we do have an update on the Popeye's chicken sandwich. It's back. It's back as of today, if you're listening to this on Sunday. Uh, and then supposedly back forever. Uh, Popeye's took two months off after uh, running out of inventory. Now, they have not been, uh, you know, I did speak at length with their uh, head of marketing for North America. Uh, you know, not to say that they haven't been transparent, but they, they haven't really been detailed about exactly what they've been doing these last two months. You know, there have been reports of different franchisee groups uh, staffing up because anyone who, well, has ever been to a Popeye's knows that staffing is always an issue. Um, but, uh, you know, especially during this time, it was just chaos. You know, they just could not keep the trains moving. Uh, so, you know, one of the groups of Popeye's owners uh, is, is reportedly going to have two people just making these sandwiches all day. Like, that's that's their job, you know, and so that you always have two people dedicated only to the sandwich. And then everyone else can actually take care of people and keep other things moving. Uh, but, you know, essentially, they burned through two months of supply in two weeks uh, after the sandwich kind of really blew up. And most of that was in one week. You know, the first week, it was a bit quiet. Uh, and then it really exploded. But then it was two months and everyone's like, uh, OK, guys, you, you started this like viral sensation. Uh, Kamiko, what are you seeing in terms of I me? Mean, we had such a social media explosion around it. Are they going to be able to kind of build that back up after taking two months off? Or do you think people are just going to kind of shrug it off? I think, well, before I answer that question, I think it's very funny that they took two months to regroup about this. Because in true Popeye's fashion, I don't know if you ever walked in and been like, can I get a piece of chicken? They're like, we're out. And you got to wait like two hours. <laughs> very on brand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what makes them great. Um, chef's kiss. But, um, yeah, I would say there's still a hype around it. Um, and I think a lot of that is because of the feud that they started. Like, it wasn't just releasing this sandwich. It was the poking at um, Chick-fil-A. Um, now, I don't know if we're going dollar for dollar. 
if it's going to pan out the way that Popeyes wants to. But as far as the engagement on social media, when they dropped that video, I don't think it was anything but like 20 seconds. But still, people were very into it. All up and down my timeline, I'm seeing people quote tweet that video with finally, it's happening. Um, so I still think there's a lot of engagement and excitement around it. So we'll we'll see how it pans out. Yeah, and I liked how the video this time around was just them basically putting up a sticker on a Popeye sign next to a Chick-fil-A, Chick-fil-A. sign that, mm-hmm. that said close Sundays. And then they put up a sign that says open Sundays. Petty <laughs> just, King. Yeah, it's just like you might as well own the fact that you are the devil's chicken. <laughs> 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 but uh, yeah, I mean, the biggest response I've gotten from like normal people outside of marketing is, oh, good. You know, I never got to try it. Like, like no normal human being was going to go through the rigmarole that it took to get one. Like I waited for those of you listen to the podcast where we live sample. Well, we tried to like all live sample. And I think I was the only one who even got one. Uh, and it took me an hour. And then the only reason I got it after an hour was because a lady I'd been talking to like went up and started, you know, doing like table talk across the counter with someone that, you know, about, Hey, come on, come on, just get us those sandwiches. Just make it, <laughs> make it happen. <laughs> and then like, there's like sliding stuff under the table. I mean, it was, it was, you really got to work the Popeyes to get that stuff. But, um, but yeah, I mean, to Kamiko's point, they have a notorious reputation for for service or lack thereof. Um, you know, I, I've been in the South most of my life, and Popeye's it's great chicken. Um, it's it's a little hard to get a hold of sometimes, and they're never going to have a full menu. So, I you know, I, I don't think that they'll have the kind of crazy rush, and I think starting out on Sunday is probably smart um, so that it doesn't go necessarily too crazy. But hopefully they are staffing up because they got to be ready. Uh, you know, it, it really hit them in the, in the weak spot. So I wish we had more updates than that, except I'll say that uh, I've noticed a lot of regional chains uh, really uh, rolling out chicken sandwiches or at least promoting chicken sandwiches over the last few months. So I do think this has kind of started a like, hey, this is the hot thing, which is hilarious since chicken sandwiches have been around at fast food places for, what, 20 years? You know, it's like I remember when it was a big deal that Wendy's really added theirs and it's you just wouldn't think people would get stoked about it. But the weird thing is that this isn't the first chicken sandwich that Popeyes has had either. They had a, a po'boy sandwich yeah. around uh, 2003 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I remember that. And it just kind of fizzled. So obviously somebody was tinkering with the recipe because they got it right this time. Yeah, and it's a it's a subtle thing. Like the bread has to be you know on point, and the and the chicken's got to not be sad. Like I've had several chicken sandwiches since then at different chains and they're all overcooked. They're all like kind of burnt uh, in a way that's hard to describe. Like it's just not good. It's not juicy. It's not like, it's just not like a really great sandwich. It's just kind of like, well, okay. I gave up beef uh, maybe like two months ago. And so I'm eating a lot more kind of alternatives to beef. And that's how I really noticed. I was like, man, there's a lot of pretty lousy chicken out there. So well, check out our story um, on adweek.com if you're curious to learn more about what they've been up to for the last two months. Uh, and uh, keep an eye out because I'm sure this is not the last we will we will hear of it. All right. Let's move on to equally important news, our biggest awards of the year. So as I mentioned, uh, Brand Week is off and running, our uh, biggest event that takes place out in Palm Springs. And uh, so we are recording this in advance, but one of the biggest things we announced there, maybe the biggest thing I think we announced there, is our Brand Genius Awards. Robert, you've been running this beast of an awards program for a long time. Tell us, where did this thing come from? It did have a name before it was called the Brand Genius Awards. So tell us. Yeah, it was uh, a really, really catchy name. It was called the Marketer of the Year Award. (laughs) Um, I, I kind of like it. There's like a it certain directness to it. rolls right off the tongue and goes down like a chicken sandwich. <laughs> and um, 
Basically, it started under the auspices of Brand Week magazine, which, you know, along with Ad Week and Media Week was part of the the old triumvirate uh, back in the pre-web days. And, um, you know, I I wasn't – I haven't been around that long, but uh, this award was just kind of considered a, an annual franchise. Uh, not that big a deal was made of it. It was a nod to uh, really cool marketing and um, I don't remember it being promoted all that much. Uh, attendance uh, was a little hit or miss. Uh, most of the revenue in those days came from uh, from print ads, so the events weren't as much of a focus. But uh, since the um, coming of Michael Wolf as our editor in 2011, uh, the award has been rechristened as Brand Genius. Um, although some of our winners have uh, a certain discomfort with being called a genius. But it's a lot catchier, and uh, so it's been around for about 30 years or so, actually a little bit more than 30 years. And uh, as always, it salutes the um, the best and the brightest uh, at work in uh, marketing and brand building. So it's, it's easy to get your arms around. And um, historically, I went back over our list, and we've, we've honored some really, really – uh, interesting people. Like we spotted them before they became a really big deal. Uh, Peter Vesterbaka, who was the man who brought Angry Birds into the world, uh, was a recipient of our award in 2011. Uh, Kensuke Sua, who was the marketing mind behind Uniqlo before anybody knew who that was. And um, Neil Blumenthal and uh, David uh, Gilboa of uh, Warby Parker, a brand that you might have heard of, also brand genius recipients in 2013. So there's some history here and uh, a lineage that uh, I think the staff is justifiably proud of. Well, before we get into the individuals, one of the only kind of organizational awards that we give out each year with this uh, is what we call the Brand Save Award, which is for nonprofits for advocacy groups. Diana, you wrote that up this year, correct? Yes, I did. I actually wrote it up last year as well. Oh, so nice. maybe it's becoming my thing. <laughs> well, so remind um, us uh, remind us who it was last year and then let us know who it was who who's the winner this year. Yeah, last year it was Reshma Sujani. She's the founder of Girls Who Code, which is um, such an incredible organization that hosts camps and classes for um, young women to learn how to code and get them more involved in STEM and really uh, allows them to envision a career in computer science. Um, and then this year, it is Rusty Robertson and Sue Schwartz, who are two of the co-founders of Stand Up to Cancer, um, which you probably first heard of, you know, back about 10 years ago when they did um, their first ever telethon. It was like a gazillion celebrities were a part of it. And they've kind of just kept growing since then. And they've um, they really focus on like speeding up the pace of cancer research. So they've been able to get several clinical trials and new cancer therapies approved by the FDA. Um, so they have real real tangible results, but also just they do a lot of really cool brand um, activations and partnerships. They work with the MLB and American Airlines. And um, so they're always like highlighted at the MLB All-Star Game and all that sort of thing. So they've really managed to integrate themselves into culture um, with those partnerships and, of course, with the celebrity participation um, while also having real tangible results in the cause they work with. Oh, that's great. And I definitely encourage everybody to check out Diana's story on stand-up cancer. Uh, it, it's always nice to have, like, that one heartwarming or really part of this. Not to say that, you know, these other brands, are you know, aren't necessarily good. It's just it, I, I'm really glad we include this. And it's it's always a really nice part of the of the package overall. But Robert, uh, tell us some of the some of the big names this year. Uh, well, I can tell you uh, some standouts for me. Um, and being a little selfish, I actually wrote one, a big story about this. So uh, Tony Weissman, 
of uh, Duncan fame and note that I did not say Duncan Donuts because that was Mr. Weissman's big achievement, uh, was dropping the donuts uh, from the uh, Duncan Donuts name, something that as I discovered in a feature that I wrote about this, uh, the chain had actually been thinking about doing 25 years ago. So Weissman was the guy who pushed it through uh, in addition to quite a few other things, including uh, convincing the public that Duncan really does serve really good coffee on par with uh, uh, more artisanal uh, outfits, if you will. Uh, also, Marvin Chow, uh, the creative mind that led the team that gave us Make Google Do It. Um, Deirdre Findlay of Stitch Fix, who created that incredible red carpet thing with uh, – it allowed the hoi polloi to strut down the red carpet and have a social moment, which I thought was really, really good. And uh, and then Emily Boschwitz of the Hymns brand, uh, which I think deserves a special award for finding a palatable way to market uh, erectile dysfunction. I guess there's nowhere to go but up after Bob Dole. But um, <laughs> uh, she was the one in part uh, behind the uh, limp cactus ads, and I'm going to leave it right there. <laughs> okay. Um yeah, the uh, Diana. Any other any other names that jumped out at you, or any folks that you uh, have either covered or that you've run across, or you, you think were uh, good ones to include this year? Yeah, I mean, I agree uh, with Robert that uh, Emily Boschewitz from Hims. They, I feel like you see their advertising if you live in New York all the time in the subway, um, and it really is eye catching. And I also think um, they launched oh, definitely in the past year um, hers, which is a woman's line. Um, so I think it's interesting that they're expanding into that space as well. Um, I guess I also have to give a shout out to David Rubin, the CMO of The New York Times, one of the honorees. Um, their The Truth is Worth It campaign won, as you know, um, Griner, very big at Cannes this year. Um, so definitely, uh, you know, a very notable honoree. Um, and then, yeah, those those are the two that really stand out to me. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating seeing and you know, I think it still kind of struck me every time it's every single award show in advertising over the last, you know, six months, uh, which is most of them. They, the award season really kicks off in earnest around like March. Uh, and it, New York Times dominated all of them. Uh, now so did, you know, Wyden and Kennedy and Nike for the Colin Kaepernick work uh, from last mm-hmm. year, of course. But I mean, that's a, it was just those two. Every single award show. <laughs> it was like, totally. And, you know, imagine five years ago if you had said, oh, the biggest winner is going to be a New York Times campaign. I mean, just the idea of newspapers doing advertising mm-hmm. uh, in real in any sort of ambitious way that wasn't like get a subscription so you're not ignorant. You know, that was about the extent <laughs> of like like Robert, am I right? Like I just feel like newspapers um you know, have have never been dramatic advertisers. Yeah, I don't think 10 years ago you would have seen anything like this, maybe not even five years ago. Um, the thing that struck me about the Times work, though, is that obviously, um, you know, it, it, it was meant to uh, couch the New York Times as, uh, you know, as being at the vanguard of responsible journalism and talking about the importance of journalism for, I think, an audience that might not have thought about it as much as they prompted them to. But I kind of felt that uh, in some ways the Times was also, uh, you know, taking one for the whole team uh, because this marketing wasn't just about, oh, read the New York Times uh, to get the real story. But the truth is worth it is kind of like waving a flag for everybody uh, in journalism. And I I thought that that was uh, uh, a really nice – I don't know if altruistic is quite the word, but uh, I think it made it – uh, a little bit bigger than it would have been otherwise. Yeah, and, and I feel like there's also just um, 
the hard work that goes into investigative journalism, I think, is really overlooked. I mean, obviously, people can think back to all the president's men and things like that. But I, I think there's an assumption that that's dated, you know, that, that that's not the way newspapers work anymore. But, Kamiko, you came up through newspapers as well, right? So, I mean, I think you and I have both seen just how much work investigative reporters put into this and how many months. And it's really thankless. <laughs> it truly, truly is. So that being said, hashtag support local news. Um, but yeah, to, I, given my career has been um, short-lived um, in journalism, hard news and whatnot, but um, I do absolutely feel like we do not take the time to brag on ourselves at all. Um, and the incredible, incredible work that some of these people put out um, definitely deserves to be recognized. So I'm glad that there was a presentation for it, a commercial for it, an ad for it, a strategy for it to pat everybody else on the back. And like Robert said, wave this gigantic flag saying, um, you know, you can trust us. Yeah, I agree. I also think you think about so many of these major stories um, or like cultural moments. Like I think about the Larry Nasser scandal. That all started coming to light because of a story in the Indianapolis Star. So I like, yes, I, I do think as journalists, you know, especially when we don't get a lot of public love sometimes, <laughs> um, we want to have those moments. But it was I think the New York Times campaign was a wonderful like coming together of that. Yeah. That's pro-journalism sentiment. Well, let's more talk. of that. Yes, the uh, and, and and you know maybe slightly different, but I, I think I think she she's always a fun one to talk about. Chrissy Teigen uh, is our uh, brand visionary, which is one of our top honors that we give each year. Uh, Kamiko, obviously, it's hard to talk about Chrissy Teigen without talking about social media. I mean, I feel like that's now as more of her identity, her brand identity, I guess you could say, than even modeling was. Uh, absolutely, I think if. If I'm not mistaken, Twitter has actually named her the mayor of Twitter. Hmm. So I did not know that was a, a title. I hope she adds it to her her list of titles. Um, but, yeah, she has found a really, really good way to brand herself, unlike some, you know, in a different way than any other celebrity that we've seen do it. Um, I think it's really an incredible move to kind of mark yourself as the mayor of Twitter. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I feel like she, you know, the big discussion that you always see with her and John Legend is that, you know, it, maybe this is a sad state of 2019, is that just they're so not problematic. <laughs> you know? Truly. I mean, you see no, how you flourish yeah. when you're not problematic. You know what? I feel like, let me knock on wood that this, there, wood is knocked on. She's going to remain unproblematic. Yeah, something in the um, back of your head's like, <laughs> oh, just, I've been As soon as I say it. I've been fooled before by these <laughs> celebs. But uh, but I, I don't mean, think she has a clothing line made in sweatshops, right? No, no probably not. No, no. she doesn't. <laughs> the you know, and, and I feel like uh, she certainly has her haters. You know, she is very open with her politics, and so there. Yeah. It's not to say that there aren't people out there who really dislike her opinions and her perspectives on stuff. But as you know, just as an influencer, as a, a star at her level. She's just not gross, you know? She's not out mm. there, like, selling weight loss lollipops or whatever. She's not doing these, like, really just nauseating kind of reality show things. Eh, Diana, like, how would you encapsulate, like, what— I, th I think some people who don't pay attention to her are going to be like, oh, why'd you, why would you call her a brand visionary? But, I, I mean, I think she is kind of almost singular in her ability to walk this impossibly thin line of being that famous and yet at the same time being a human being. Totally, totally. And I also think maybe she doesn't get enough credit and I'm glad we're recognizing it for like how genius she is at building a brand. Last fall, I actually had the opportunity to attend. It was a Chrissy Teigen event, I believe at the New York Food and Wine Festival. It was, it was some New York Food and Wine event. It was a year ago, so forgive my memory. But 
there were so many people there. It was all like Chrissy Teigen branded. They had little stations with recipes made from her new cookbook. It was the second one had just come out. So it's like Cravings 2 or Cravings a sequel. Um, There was all these like Instagram photo moments. They had her cookware line at Target on sale. Like it was an incredible event and like jam packed with people. Like people are obsessed with her and they are obsessed with her recipes. And she really does a great job of like kind of integrating that. Like she's taken over that food space. And like you said, like I think she's way better known for her cookbooks than now that she even is for her modeling career. And she's really done a great job of building this really like this authentic brand that people feel like they know her because they read her tweets. And then so they want to go, you know, make her grilled cheese sandwich, which was phenomenal, by the way. I had one. And then <laughs> buy her cookware. And, you know, it, it feels like this person is your friend. Yeah. And that's something that I think every celebrity has tried. Uh, and, and you know, there are certain ones like, uh, it, it, you know, that – Kristen Bell or maybe a few in Dex Shepard or maybe like a, a second. I'm not going to say a close second because I think even they still feel a little more um, at, a, at a distance from their audiences, from their fans. But I think that's healthy. Like my biggest concern with Chrissy Teigen and John Legend is always like, you deserve a little space like, like from the masses of humanity. And they're, you know, it's just watching them or what, namely Chrissy engage with, you know, so many people online every day. And part of me just like, that can't be good for your, your mental health, you know, to just be getting this fire hose of, of people talking about you and talking to you every single day, but they navigate it really well. And I I think brands have a lot to learn from them. I think uh, influencers hopefully have a lot to learn from them compared to certain other people. Um, I I don't know. I I think it's, it's great. I I think kind of like Kamiko, I knock on wood a little bit every time where I'm just like, oh man, everybody, all your heroes fail you (laughs) on a long enough timeline. (laughs) Yeah. But for now, for now, they seem like they're doing great. So, uh, very cool of, of her to, um, is she's going to be at, uh, at brand week, right? Yeah. Yeah, she is. So great. I'm, I'm jealous of everyone. I will not be there. So I'm jealous of everybody who gets to, uh, (laughs) Gets to meet her, gets to... I, I hope she's coming because I just wrote her into the script. <laughs> and I'm covering her her panel, so... <laughs> well, this will be her moment when she does what they call in wrestling a heel turn, where you just suddenly <laughs> become the bad guy out of nowhere. That's going to be this the moment. Uh, and and so really good of her to time it well for, for Brand Week. But no, I think she'll, uh, she'll be great and it'll be fascinating to hear uh, kind of what she has to say to that audience as well. All right. Uh, we're out of time, but uh, thank you both so much, Robert. It's uh, such a pleasure having you back. And let's you and I record an entire bonus episode about our love of uh, Zeppelins and all things blimp. And uh, we'll just release I am, I am so all over that. And I, I'll, I'll wear my Zeppelin T-shirt just for the podcast. The uh, my uh, Robert is one of the only people who can appreciate that every time there is it where I live in Birmingham, Alabama, there is a building that rebuilt the Zeppelin mast at the top of its building. Uh, I think it's called the Jefferson Hotel or the Jefferson Building. Uh, but it has a Zeppelin mast that, uh, as Robert knows, was sadly never used. No Zeppelins ever parked here in Birmingham. Yeah, they, just, they, they just didn't have enough Zeppelins to get down there. But, uh, but you know, the building's there for when that day comes. Yeah, so we, we, it's back. It's back, y'all. If, <laughs> if you need it, this new wave of Zeppelins needs a place to park. We got one down here. Uh, but we will, uh, I don't know, if there's an outcry, outcry of support, we'll do a bonus episode just just about Zeppelin, Zeppelin-based marketing. But uh, for now, we'll call it a day. Uh, Diana, thanks so much for making time for us. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
Kamiko, always a pleasure. Always happy to be here. Uh, this week's episode was produced by Chris Ahrens uh, with production assistance by Josh Rios and edited by Lane McGivney. Our theme music is by Home. If you haven't already, please uh, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, they mean a lot to us and they help new listeners discover the show, which uh, quick, people probably think I pre-record this part, but no, I'm going to say real quickly, I was sitting with a bunch of other podcasters randomly in uh, Prague the other day when we were at this conference and we're all we were all telling each other about our podcast, so we pulled out our phones <laughs> we're showing it to each other except i guess apple like shows you the reviews for a podcast in the country that you're in at the moment i guess because it showed like ours only had two reviews <laughs> and these other people are like wait why does mine say it only has three reviews uh so th- that was kind of a fun way to find out that in other countries if you try to show people your podcast it makes you look like you're really small potatoes but uh so hey if you're in another country definitely leave us a review because apparently we need all the help we can get uh but uh but yeah so and you can drop us an email at podcast at adweek.com that's podcast at adweek.com uh for adweek i'm david Griner, and we will be back next week Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just a thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality.